More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It's April 7th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KVVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week, or in this case, a postdoc. Yeah. So if you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about the awesome things happening at Oregon State University, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can read more about our up-and-coming guests and find the links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Delia Shelton from the Department of Environmental and Molecular Toxicology. Delia is a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow carrying out research in the lab of Robert Tangway. She uses zebrafish to study animal behavior in groups. And specifically, she is looking at the effect of heavy metal cadmium on animal behavior. Hi, Delia. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us more about the research you've been doing as a postdoctoral fellow here at OSU? Yes. So I study, I guess, social complexity or understanding how and why animals uh, form groups. And rather than understanding that from a, from a molecular point of view, I take uh, a look at how whole organisms interact and uh, cr- create these different types of dynamics. You might think of flocks of birds or schools of fish or uh, swarms of, of bees that make these different uh, movement patterns. And so to do that, I uh, uh, use zebrafish. And zebrafish are um, this kind of biomedical miracle, uh, in a sense. Um, there's a lot of hope in the zebrafish because it has the ability to regenerate its heart, even at larval stages, um, it's parts of its brain. And its quick ability to adapt to laboratory life has allowed them to be a fan favorite uh, for biomedical researchers. They've uh, sequenced the genome and finding that um, that 74% of their genome is related to, uh, or is uh, analogous to the humans, it's allowed them to look at different types of gene therapies. And we know a lot about um, their neuroarchitecture as well. Um, but here, 
for my research, rather than, again, looking at these kind of reductionistic techniques, I um, harness that biomedical toolkit and then also look at how whole organisms, whole, whole zebrafish interact um, to um, form these groups in both uh, the wild in India and also in, in the laboratory here. And I ask questions about um, how do you become a leader? So... Um, do you need to be bigger than everybody else? Do you have to have some type of information? Uh, do you, if you're female, do you have to be more aggressive to have this inordinately large effect on the group? And then once identifying the key characteristics that are related to these different social roles, I then ask, can we actually engineer them using this uh, biomedical uh, toolkit that I have to create groups um, that are successful or resilient against anthropogenic change. Oh, very cool. So like the zebrafish, maybe a little bit of a proxy organism for humans or other vertebrates? Yes. So zebrafish are the leading uh or one of the leading biomedical models for the National Institutes of Health. Um, and they are found in over 9,000 labs um, currently, and they're increasing. In fact, um, the mecca for uh, zebrafish laboratory research started right down the road at Eugene um, back in the 80s. Um, and so, yeah, they're just exponentially increasing. Again, I said there's there's a lot of hope riding on this little fish. Right, so, so and you... You've found out some stuff about about zebrafish through your research in the lab and in India. And so now you want to kind of maybe expose your zebrafish in the lab to the same types of things or, or find out ways to um, affect zebrafish behavior and draw conf- conclusions from that? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I've, I've done quite a bit with zebrafish in, in both in the lab and the field. Again, um, in the, I can tell you a little bit about my field research. Um, so um, there we're looking at more of a population level study where we've gone to um, several different sites th- throughout India. So zebrafish, I should back up a little bit and tell you about where zebrafish are from. They're, they're not from the lab in Eugene down there. <laughs> As most people think, um, but you can find them in aquariums, and they're really great uh, starter fish because they're super resilient, right? They yeah. can do all these regenerations, um, have all these regenerative abilities, and yeah, it's hard for kids to kill them. So great first pet. Um, but um, yeah, so they're actually native to um, South Asia, so you can find them in Pakistan, India, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. Um, and so a particular green spot for zebrafish is is in India. And so that's where I've, I've gone a couple times now. Um, and my first uh, expedition as a postdoc um, involved going to about uh, four or five different sites. Um, well, four or five different sites we actually found fish. We went to a lot more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and to um, some sites it required like a 17-hour train ride followed by another two-hour car ride to go and collect the fish. But the question that we were asking was to um, look at um, how environmental variation, so looking at particularly these anthropogenic uh, factors such as water flow or... Um, Oh, sorry, these environmental factors that are subject to anthropogenic change, such as water flow or 
vegetation loss um, would affect or is related to aspects of these collective behavior in these zebrafish. And again, this collective behavior is um, where you're seeing these animals move in groups as though they're in, in turning in unison as though they're single organisms, much like you would see with starling flocks or schools of fish. And so we examined how these different environmental features were related to them and uh, re- related to these aspects of like leadership, um, um, movement, collective movement, um, fission and fusion, and, and group size. And we found that uh, the groups, uh, their aspects of collective behavior were related to uh, water flow. So um, again, with faster flowing water, you found larger groups, you found um, the groups were more volatile, so they fissioned and fused a lot, meaning coming together and breaking apart. And they um, had also frequent changes, more frequent changes in leadership than those in still water. And um, we also saw lots of variation in the in the pollutants um, there. And so um, watching um, them being so close to um, humans in these human settlements. Um, and watching people there not really care about zebrafish, it kind of struck me um, that, hunt these zebrafish are a billion, probably multi-billion, at least billion-dollar industry in, in worldwide, and these people from the developing countries aren't benefiting from them in the profound ways um, that others in developed countries are. So thinking in, maybe they could be sentinels um, for for contaminant exposures and seeing how these contaminants, um, particularly cadmium, um, could affect their behavior. So, yeah. So, cadmium. How? Where yeah. is? Where does that really come from in the environment? Yeah, it occurs naturally, but then it also is increasing in its sort of presence in the environment. Yeah, so so cadmium. Everybody today has probably touched a little bit of cadmium. So um, it's found widely in in foods um, such as grains. Uh, it's particularly helpful in leafy greens like spinach. You've also, if you have a love for chocolate like I do, you've probably kissed it uh, when you've eaten a Hershey's Kisses or other types of chocolate. And so it's it's accumulating in the environment because it's found in your cell phone, um, in your batteries in particular, and, and also other batteries. Um, and uh, so as people uh, discard these wastes uh, because there's... Um, Rather than recycling or them or putting them at uh, lo- uh, locations for a safe drop off, um, they uh, as they rust or decompose, they uh, the cadmium gets absorbed in the waterways and then it ends up in the soil and the plants absorb it. And cadmium has a two plus charge, um, meaning um, that it can disp- when absorbed in the body, it has a, a it has the ability to uh, displace other trace metals such as calcium, uh, zinc, and magnesium. And calcium, in particular, is used a lot um, in neural functioning and muscle movement. And so, when cadmium binds there, it uh, can negatively affect those processes. And cadmium has a particularly long half-life that can reach decades. And so, once you have cadmium, you're stuck with it. And people who have elevated 
cadmium levels have reported to have sensory deficits, meaning that they have impairments in their vision, um, they can't see as well, and it's related to age-related macular degeneration. Um, they can't smell as well, and um, they also have reported hearing loss. And this is um, not only susceptible for people in who, who work with um uh, work with cadmium, but also people have um, been exposed, such as those um, through, through dietary exposure, eating shellfish or other, these other foods. And how would that, how does um, cadmium potentially affect a zebrafish or anyone else? Yeah. So what we've seen, um, so again, using, bringing these zebrafish and using them kind of as, uh, to examine how cadmium might affect behavior, what we've done um, in the lab is We've exposed a fraction of the zebrafish to this cadmium, and we find that it then allows them to have an inordinately large effect on the group. So groups with just a fraction of the fish exposed to cadmium, not even half, about a third of the fish, they it changes how the group uh, uses landmarks. It changes uh, their boldness. Um, meaning their propensity to approach novel objects, and also makes the group far more aggressive um, without leading to other effects on the other aspects of social behavior. So we didn't see that cadmium altered the closeness of these um, individuals in the group. So they're, the, the zebrafish, these unaffected zebrafish, are still keeping these cadmium-impaired individuals in the shoal which you might then might see that it has consequences for predation pressure um, or, or predation. So um, if you have these uh, sick cadmium-exposed individuals in the group and um, the, the, um, that are approaching these kind of novel, you might think, new food items or uh, predators, um, meaning that they're more bold, it's leading the, the other groups um, making them more susceptible to this predation pressure. So, yeah, it could definitely have these negative effects on, on the group. But. So you studied zebrafish when you went to India, and did you bring any of those zebrafish back to you with the lab, back with you to the lab, or do you use separate populations, sort of this lab-adapted zebrafish here in the lab setting and study that do they sort of exist independently? Yeah, so one of the goals of my postdoc was to bring them back in the lab um, from <laughs> India. That didn't quite happen, through, even though through, we went through a lot of effort. Again, I told you one of these sites required a 17-hour train ride, then another two-hour car ride, and then collecting them, and then bringing them back on that whole entire journey. Um, but again, as though even though um, I guess the local people don't really value them. They'll just kind of, if they're catching them, they're looking more things like for chana or snakehead, which is the predator, the zebrafish. And in fact, to the dismay of the graduate, uh, the other postdoc that I was working with at the time, um, she was trying to collect them off the bank and throw them back into the water. And and uh, because the, the local people were just throwing them on the bank, um, <laughs> they don't really care. So, 
again, it's really this really heightened um, Western biomedical research that cares about these zebrafish. Yeah. And so, but the the local people are not uh, super interested in them, or they're kind of just like a catch, but you know, catch and release or like catch by accident type of thing. But then, your zebrafish, when you're coming back from India, disappeared somehow. They, yeah, they disappeared. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, someone who I was working with mysteriously they they lost them along the way <laughs> right um so we actually got them or yeah we did a handoff at one of the field sites to get them to the to the exporter and they kind of didn't make it <laughs> and so i um spent another month um there collecting zebrafish um and um i tried to work with additional exporters again trying to find a really great collaborator um there and um, I, I waited about. Um, I, after that month, I came back um, to the states and uh, uh, yeah, we are still we still have not gotten our zebrafish. There's been I guess issues with the permits. I, we got all they going up. Um, yeah, issues with the permits and other things. In fact, um, we thought at one point that they were going to come um, and we were ready to go. And uh, the exporter says. They're not here. So even after all this time preparing here in the lab, getting everything ready, um, yeah, the zebrafish have have not made it here. So yeah, so someone in India finds them particularly attractive, I guess. Yes, <laughs> besides you and your other postdoc friend. Yes, definitely, definitely. But I heard you say that one of your goals of your postdoc is to build a collaboration with someone in India for these types of projects, and then also, you know, hopefully get zebrafish back from India. But what were some of your other goals for your postdoc? Yeah. Yeah, so some of my other goals were to, one, um, expand um, the type of funding sources that I would that I could become attractive to. So um, I've been predominantly funded by the National Science Foundation as I'm on a National Science Foundation uh, postdoc, and also my my. Uh, labs were funded that way, but to expand um, to the national, uh, to NIH, or so National Institutes of Health, um, and with that um, tie, that's really kind of solidified my uh, desire to understand more about cadmium, so I can then apply for funding through the National Institutes for Environmental Health and Safety. And then also to um, learn about how institutes work. Um, So I strategically selected postdocs that were at institutes. One was at the Leibniz Institute in Berlin. Another one was at the, I started out initially at the Oregon Hatchery Research Center, um, which is also another type of institute here in Oregon, to understand how they work, because I hope to run one one day. And then the other one was to find someone, um, at that time I was really gung-ho about going in, into academia, so I wanted to find an, an advisor that I got, got along well with, um, and uh, who published and had a history of getting students into academia. So yeah, those were my kind of four goals. Yeah. So you are sort of splitting your time, your postdoctoral research time, at three different institutions, and how has that sort of impacted your experience? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I'm doing a a tri-institute postdoc, and um, I would say NSF is 
wonderful and, and unique and that um, I'm actually considered an independent contractor. <laughs> so um, by by the by the government and um, at different institutions, a visiting research scholar. So that prints me in an interesting position where I do have academic advisors, but um, they don't really direct my time as much. Again, they are supportive in um and supporting my research as the fellowship only provides a salary but not a lot of resources for conducting the research. Um, so yeah, that's it's been a great experience. Um, I've learned a lot about how um, the German system works and it's, it's very different from the American system uh, in terms of academic training and also uh, research. When I was in Berlin, the place was more, I found out, when I was there, that the priest um, has limited um, space in terms of doing experimental research. It's more of like this amazing think tank where you have these um, really brilliant scientists from all over the world um, kind of meet there and they discuss kind of what are the next big questions in science. And then they all kind of scurry out to different parts of the world. <laughs> Me, I went to India and they come back um, and, and do their research there and then come back and maybe write a review paper um, together about what they found. And then they publish separately their their individual empirical studies. So that, this, that was very different. So I, I needed to find a place um, where I could do my empirical research. And so I landed here um, at the Tangaway Lab. It's probably one of the most spectacular labs for behavior research that I've seen. Um, even though they are um, very much invested in, in toxicology screening, but the number of um, setups that they have to rapidly uh, behaviorally assess um, individual zebrafish at multiple life stages is um, something I have yet to see in even in all the labs that I've been in across the world. So it's, it's really a great place to work. So. How did you go about selecting the labs that you wanted to do research in? Because you must have been sort of assessing that when you were in your PhD or finishing up. So how did you navigate that and balance that? Yeah, so... Um, during my, uh, before, about a year before I defended my PhD, um, probably a year and a half before I defended. So in, in May of 2000, so I defended in 2016. So in May 2015, I knew I wanted to write a National Science Foundation postdoc because I wanted the autonomy to pursue my own ideas. And um, and I didn't want to be restricted by geographic boundaries as well. And uh, so during that time, I searched the internet for, uh, for publicly available uh, funding proposals. And I was happy to find them on, on We Ecology and, and uh, Fixshare and other spaces. So I collected them and I emailed those people. Um, and I asked them for their proposals and I also asked them for advice. And one um, person gave me fantastic advice. And he says, um, one, in, go and try and meet those postdoctoral fellows. Uh, oh, sorry, your potential advisors and decide who you want to work with. And by, um, he set out this really nice timeline. So he said, by, uh, 
by August, you need to have started working on your proposal. So um, I solidified my postdoc advisors during the summer, and I can tell you a little bit about how I did that. And then um, I started writing again in August and probably had a draft to my uh, reviewers, meaning people in my lab, and uh, also my potential po- my postdoc advisors, um, so that they could review it by October, mid October. Again, the deadline is in November, so this allowed me to get revisions and feedback on those. And so, how I selected these advisors, I um, was really fortunate to um, be funded by an NSF IGERT, which allowed me to go and visit different places. I also received the advice from this uh, this previous uh, NSF fellow who said, invite yourself to go to seminars. And so I did. Um, I invited myself to uh, seminars at places where I wanted to do, uh, places that I was considering uh, doing a, a fellowship. And they uh, integrated me in their seminar cycle, and this allowed me to visit those universities in Canada and Scotland. Um, and did I go anywhere? Yeah, other places in the U.S. Um, to uh, for for free, <laughs> essentially. Right. So, so becoming yeah. a seminar speaker, that was your way of securing funding for kind of this exploration of these potential places to work. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a very smart thing that I'm going to have to remember. <laughs> so. Yeah. Seems like a very creative approach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it works. In fact, I think um, now there are a lot of uh, lifters where you can add yourself. And But I would be more proactive than that. I would definitely email someone you're considering to and proactively say, hey, can I come and, and give a talk? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Is there anything you think is particularly important for graduate students to keep in mind as they're kind of contemplating their next move or looking at a postdoc? Yeah, so I would, I would uh, suggest that uh, what they would do, I, I would one, I would I know people are probably really looking for a postdoc, but I wouldn't stress out over it. I would say um, if you're considering, it's okay to consider alternative careers. And in fact, I I would strongly suggest it um, because 0.5% of people actually wind up in academia. And for industry jobs, you do not need a postdoc. In fact, you probably don't need to know how to write a grant or publish. Um, So I would um, definitely suggest to explore other options. Um, I would try and if you um, maybe do do a postdoc in industry if you can. Um, I would, um, yeah, don't be afraid to change career paths. Uh, Yeah. So I, I would I would definitely suggest those those things. Yeah. Another thing that you have pursued during your postdoc was uh, commercialization opportunities. And can you tell us a little bit about what that consisted of? It sounds like you developed an assay. Yeah. So I know probably <laughs> like like uh, many like me and many PhDs, you spend a lot of time tinkering in the lab and inventing lots of really cool things. Um, so. A lot of funding agencies, um, NSF, NIH, and uh, the Department of Defense, the DOD, have these pockets of funding um, to help you 
develop those ideas and see if there's actually a commercial market for them. And so that, um, that novel duct taped together kind of assay or, or apparatus that you've developed might be bigger than something that's just going to go into your dissertation or into a single publication. And that is the case, um, or that's something that I'm exploring. So I created uh, an assay that um, VisioGlow um, that assesses multiple aspects of functional vision in all seeing animals. And I approached, uh, approached I, I disclosed this invention to um, the o- OSU. And then I also, um, while checking my email, I um, got a note from NSF saying, hey, do you have an idea that you might think that has commercial potential? Explore it. And so I, I listened in and uh, I learned about this really awesome opportunity. So it's the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps. And it allows uh, academics to learn to think like entrepreneurs. And um, so if you have an idea, you can uh, you don't even have to have a technology. That's how easy it is. Um, you just have to have an idea. It can be, and you don't have to have a proof of concept. I, I was lucky that I did, and it's evolving. But um, it's, and you can apply as a graduate student or a postdoc. You don't have to be a full faculty to apply. And the grant is quite small, um, meaning in length. <laughs> so it's it's only a two-page grant, and it's really based on your team. So you need an entrepreneurial lead, a technical lead, and an industry mentor. And if you partner with the OSU Accelerator, um, there's Carl Mundorf there, and he can gladly uh, link you up with an, an industry mentor um, to kind of pursue this opportunity. And so within a month, um, you can know whether or not you're funded or not. And so it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to maybe take something that you've developed into the lab to the next level. So, so maybe get a patent. Is that what you were shoot, aiming for with yeah. this grant? Yeah, you don't actually need to get a patent. So um, this grant is actually for customer discovery. So just, again, it's um, even though I'm more in the hard scientist, it's taking you to a social scientist to aspects. So I've, I've partnered with uh, Molly Arnold here. And so um, to kind of enhance my soft skills to ask people, what are the needs and challenges that they're facing in industry? So and to see if my technology actually fits those needs. And so, yeah, you, you can get a patent. That's one option, but you can also um, have a trade secret, um, like Coca-Cola. <laughs> Coca-Cola <laughs> is not patented, um, and um, there's probably other options as well. Um, so this uh, grant allows you to explore that one to see if there's potential market, and then once if you see that there is, then you can explore patenting or or some of these other options. Um, then. The best thing is if you have a buyer, um, but if you don't, you might need some more research and development and NSF or NIH can supply you with a small business innovation research grant, um, which you can then apply for there. So there's these kind of stepping stones, but the small, the first one is particularly easy and I recommend, yeah, even if you're an undergraduate, you could apply for this. Yeah, so. just seeing if, I guess it, it, to me, it sounds like from your description, just kind of seeing if there is interest from a broader audience, from your industry, in your particular idea. 
which yes. may actually be like an assay in your case, or it may just be an idea for something that needs further development. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be um, uh, maybe have a particular uh, machine learning script uh, that could be applied to, I don't know, human health or something. So, yeah, again, it's just flying. Is there a need for this? Yes. Does your technology meet, meet this need? If it doesn't, can you tweak it so that it does? Or maybe you can't. So just exploring that. Okay. So and capitalizing on kind of this federal uh money that has been invested in, in your science to take it to another another level outside of academia. Yeah. Very cool. That's great to know about. <laughs> yeah. So looking forward, you're finishing up your postdoc now? Yeah. So I am finishing up and um, I was lucky enough um, during my uh, first year as a postdoc, actually, I was offered a, a job and um, they wanted me to leave immediately, leave my postdoc immediately and and start. But I was like, you know, this NSF postdoc is pretty sweet, you know, uninterrupted research time, um, no teaching um, yeah. and all these other benefits to kind of really explore this research and, and gain new skills. And, and uh, so potentially be a better professor after that or a better academic. Yes, yes. And so I, again, made those arguments to this <laughs> university. Hey, I'll be a more, um, yeah, I'll be a better professor. I'll bring more resources to this university um, if I can do this postdoc. And I said, okay, <laughs> after some negotiation time. And um, so, yeah, I'll be starting at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville in the psychology department, and I'll be opening up my lab, EPIC, is the <laughs> Environmental Psychology Innovation Center. And I'm actively recruiting graduate students and postdocs and other talented people to join me there. So, yeah. so you heard it here for, first, folks, on <laughs> inspiration dissemination. Uh, Delia is starting a lab very soon. That's so exciting. That's EPIC. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm excited. All right. And uh, well, we're getting around to the end of our our time talking on talking to Delia on inspiration dissemination, but we still have our two traditions to wrap up. So we still need to ask you uh, for your advice uh, and what what is your advice and then who would be most helped by your advice? Yeah. So I would I would say my advice would be uh, to maybe take a different path. Um, and look at some of the things that you've already developed and see where your skills apply. Again, this is, um, even though I'm going in academia, this is speaking uh, to, I guess, those those graduate students in the lab or even postdocs who are maybe considering ad academia or, or not sure where they want to go. But I would definitely see about maybe um, those courses or those skills that they've picked up that are maybe relatable to other industries. Maybe you could create a startup from a technology you, you've developed, or maybe uh, what you've learned would allow you to get an industry job in pharma or even in the tech industry. And I would definitely say explore those skills because even if you are gonna go into academia, again, if you're gonna be a um, be able to adequately mentor your students so that they can then have jobs, you're also going to need to know where those skill sets lie and where you can push them so that they can have job security or somewhere else. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I say ex look at your skill sets and then um, 
yeah, don't be afraid to apply them to other areas. Of yeah, like look broadly market. for your next step, perhaps. Yeah. Very cool. And then our final one is to ask you to uh, provide a, a song for us to as your outro. And so the question there is like, what song have you picked and what does this song mean to you? Yeah, so I picked from an Afro-Cubana uh, Afro uh, from Celia Cruz. She's an Afro-Cubana and she's a beautiful singer um, um, fr from Cuba. Um, and she has this uh, just kind of this electric music that has really uh, gotten me through all those ups and downs of graduate school. And um, I, I love to salsa dance in my uh, free time. So it's La Vida es una Carnaval. So life is a carnival. And um, yeah, it is. And yeah. <laughs> Very All cool. Right. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. And we'll be uh, on the lookout for hearing more about how cadmium or other pollutants are affecting ver not just zebrafish, but potentially other vertebrates and, and then wanting to see the, the excitement that's coming out of your lab soon when you get to the next step. Yes. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. It's been fun. <laughs> All right. And here is La Vida es un Carnival by Celia Cruz. You heard it on Inspiration Dissemination. <laughs> 